There is no such thing in our relationship with Christ as intimacy with anonymity. That's why he says to the church at Ephesus, I know you completely, comprehensively, exhaustively. I know you and I love you and I want in the year ahead for that love to grow deeper and deeper and deeper. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. Our scripture this morning comes from Revelation 2, beginning at verse 1. Listen now to the Word of God. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Amen, and we trust this reading of God's holy word. Last Sunday morning, as you know, we began a new series of studies in the book of Revelation. And this morning, as we come to chapter 2, you'll remember that the letter was written around the year 95 AD, written by the Apostle John to seven churches in Asia to encourage them and strengthen them in their faith. John had been exiled to the island of Patmos under the Roman Emperor Domitian, and one Sunday morning he had been caught up in spiritual ecstasy and given a vision. And from that vision, we have the book of Revelation. And today as we move into chapter 2, I want you to begin with an illustration. And let me ask you this. If you've ever found yourself, either as an employer or an employee, going through a revision at work, how does that work? First Pres, we put all of our staff through a performance review, both on an annual basis and quarterly reviews. And in essence, the staff will meet with their immediate supervisor, and we look at what's called SMART goals. That's very similar for many of you. And SMART goals are these. These are goals for the next 
three, four months. And when we meet with an individual, we look forward and we look back. And SMART goals run like this. The S stands for specific. Are your goals specific? It's one thing to say in the next three, four months, I'd like to try this, this, and this, but is it specific enough? Or is it too general? Specificity. Secondly, is it measurable? In other words, how do we know when you've completed that goal? And how do we know if it's successful or not? So specific, measurable, achievable. Is the goal so broad and so vast that it's simply not possible? Or is it achievable given the resources and the context in which you work? Specific, measurable, achievable. The R is, is it results focused? What will those results look like? Detail them, write them down, hold yourself to it. And is it timely? In other words, is there a date beside it? Can you say by the end of March 2016, I'm seeking to do the following, here are my goals, and this is how I know they'll be achievable, measurable, realistic, timely, and specific. Now, with all that in mind, let's come to Revelation 2, the church at Ephesus. And here is the Apostle John writing the words of the risen and exalted Christ. And he's writing to the church at Ephesus, and he is giving them a performance review. Now, can you imagine what that would feel like if the Lord would sit down and say to the folks in Ephesus, now tell me how you're getting on in your relationship with me. How is your faith are you growing in your faith? Are you further away from me than you once were? Now, allow me please to take that illustration for Ephesus and turn it on ourselves. What would you do if this afternoon, let's say around three o'clock, the rest of the family were out, some walking the dog, some playing with the children or the grandchildren, and you had an hour to spare? made yourself a cup of coffee, sat down on oh, a comfortable chair, and before you know it, sitting on the couch next to you is the Lord. And he says, nice to see you. I don't think there would be too many of us who could say the same thing. We would hesitate and become unsettled and think, what on earth is going on? And he says, I've been watching over 2015, and here we are, the middle of January in a new year, and I wanted to ask you about your faith. Talk to me a little about our relationship, your prayer life the moments when your back was up against the wall. And do you remember last March and then again in June when you were facing some challenging days? Tease that out for me. At the end of the conversation, he says, now, for 2016, let me give you some specific goals. What would those goals be like? 
Let me give you ones that are measurable and achievable and realistic and have a time attached to them. What would he say to you? Because in essence, that's what's going on here in Ephesus. And the passage begins, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Now, why the church in Ephesus? Why not the church in Colossae? or Thessalonica, or Corinth. Why Ephesus? Now, Ephesus had been a remarkable church for several decades by this stage. The apostle Paul had ministered there for somewhere between two and a half to three years. Then Timothy, his co-worker, had ministered there. Then the apostle John. John had been living in Ephesus before moving to Patmos, exiled by the Roman emperor Domitian. Remarkable church. So why write to Ephesus? An important city? No question. Probably the greatest city in the province of its day. Pergamum was the capital of the region, but Ephesus was the more important city. As you're looking at it, the major trade route from the East Asia, then moving into Europe, stopped in Ephesus a major port, a major trade route. It was a large legislative and administrative center. It had an amphitheater that could seat between 35,000 and 40,000 people. It was a center for the arts, center for religion. Temple of Diana became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. If you go to Ephesus today, you can walk down the main street. I was there with some of you three, four years ago. And when you get to the bottom of the main street, and the main streets, incidentally, are in marble. So that tells you a thing or two in marble. And when you get to the bottom, right in front of you is the Library of Celsus, built slightly further on than this time, but it was there, utterly spectacular. It was an important, impressive city, and here was a church right at the heart of it. That's why John is writing to them. Now think of this. Here are seven congregations undergoing cultural and social persecution at this stage. Empire-wide persecution is just about to break. There had been localized persecution in the first century, but now Domitian was insisting he's worshipped as a god, and the church is pushing back and saying, no, we will not worship Caesar. We worship only Christ. John, of course, suffered for it, and many others are about to. Over the next two and a half centuries, New Testament scholars, archaeologists say about six million people are persecuted and lose their life as a result of their faith. So it's a pretty desperate moment, challenging days. And here is John reminding them that Christ walks among them. But with all of the wonderful assurance of that supernatural act taking place also comes the unsettling part of it. Because if he walks among us and he knows us and knows us intimately, that can be a little unsettling because he knows every action, every deed, every thought, every moment of every moment. He knows us comprehensively and exhaustively. And I have to say, in terms of my own life, there are times I find my saying, Father, I'm sorry that you saw me do that. And then I catch myself when I've sinned, and I find myself trying to correct myself by saying, Father, I'm not sorry you saw me do it. I'm sorry for doing it in the 
first place. And that's a sobering place when he gently, persistently reminds us of our own sin. And so, with the presence of Christ comes that sense of obedience to him. And John takes it further again. He who walks among the seven golden lampstands, and he says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, and you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardship in my name, and have not grown weary. And what we're seeing here is the same pattern in each of the seven churches. Jesus is writing to encourage them and assure them, and then He brings praise to them and says, as I see your life in ministry, I want to praise you. And the church at Ephesus, He's saying, well done. You're faithful. You're persevering. You're active. You're busy. You're reaching out into the community. You're trying to help those in need. You are doing a remarkably good job. Well done. You're doing it in my name. You're persevering, and you have not grown weary. And I imagine the church at Ephesus receiving this book of Revelation, and when the pastor there is reading through it, they are thinking, Father, thank you. Thank you. You have not grown weary. And then comes verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You have forsaken your first love. Can you imagine how the folks at Ephesus would feel? I imagine immediately they would be saying, but Lord, we're working hard for you. We're persevering. We haven't grown weary. Think of the dedication and the commitment. Think of all of the projects we have been involved in. Think of all of the energy and the investment of time and effort. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Do you love Christ? Is He at the very center of your heart and soul and mind? The times of worship excite you. Moments of prayer energize you. And you can't wait to spend that time together. And in a performance review, would he be able to say to you, I know you love me. Now, please understand what I'm asking. I'm not asking, do you have a Bible? Neither am I asking, do you go to church? I'm not asking, are you in a small group, or are an elder, or a deacon? Let's take all of that outward signs good, helpful, healthy as they are, and put them right here and ask the question again, do you love me? That's the question he asked the church at Ephesus and for us this morning, do you love me? Not do you love attending, not do you love the institution, not do you love some of the great old hymns and some of the new ones, not do you enjoy the music or seeing the children participate, but do you love me? Because often 
when our faith becomes cold and we become diffident and apathetic, it comes slowly. Almost never on a Monday morning do we wake up after a spectacular Sunday of worship together, fellowship. Do we say, that's it, it's over, I'm done. Almost never. And like erosion in so many areas of our life, it is slow and it's subtle and it's silent. And you find yourself attending worship not every Sunday, but every other Sunday. Then once every other month. And then Christmas and Easter. It sometimes happens after a particularly challenging season in your life. Lost a partner, lost a child. Prayer is no longer that wonderful, intimate moment that you can't wait to enjoy in His presence. It's become duty rather than delight. Do you find yourself drifting and wandering, and worship is no longer a priority? Prayer no longer as meaningful as it once was. And when the risen Christ writes to the church at Ephesus, and He says, you have forsaken your first love, remember the things you first did. That's the language He uses. Do you remember those days when we used to meet in prayer? You would open up your Scriptures, and it seemed as if I spoke to you from every page, and you were excited, growing in your faith in leaps and bounds. Somehow, over the years, has become stale and withered and dried, and it's not what it once was. Friends don't necessarily know. They know there's something going on, but not quite sure. Well, we haven't seen them in Sunday school for a while. Well, they used to come to the men's group on a Thursday morning, and we're kind of missing them, and we don't know what's happened. Does that describe you this morning? And what does Jesus say to the church at Ephesus? Remember the heights from which you have fallen. Repent. Do the things you did at first. Do the basics. How often have we said to one another on a Sunday morning, the main things are the main things because the main things are the main things. This prayer spending time in the Scriptures, reading, growing, interacting, enjoying fellowship, coming for worship. Earlier in the passage, in fact, writing to the folks at Ephesus, he says to them this, I admire your doctrinal discernment. Some among you said they were apostles when they were clearly not, and you would have none of it, none of it claimed to be apostles, but their life was not reflecting it. They weren't holding on to apostolic teaching. Their lives were immoral, and they would have none of it. From the outside, all seemed well. Structure, order, and there can be structure and order in a morgue, but no life, no life. Do the things you did at first. So let me ask you, as we start to head towards the end of our study this morning, if Christ was to meet with you this afternoon and do that performance review and then say, now having looked back at 15, here we are, middle of January, looking forward, 
what are your priorities in your faith for the next three or four months? What are the things that really matter? Where are the areas of growth? Where are the things that you need to pour your time and effort and energy into? It's time to reassess, refocus, and redirect. Do you remember we touched on that back in the fall? Refocus on your relationship with Him. Father, grant me, please, the insight I need. Help me, please, to evaluate my relationship and my love for you. And help me to come back. Come back to that place of wonderful intimacy where we had our first love. Reassess. Refocus. Refocus. Father, in this week, in this week to come, beginning tomorrow, the 18th of January, where are the areas in my life that I need to say, enough, I'm done, I'm, st- I'm just stopping it, and I'm moving on with you. Refocus and redirect. If you were with us last Sunday morning, you remember I was using the analogy of the push-ups. And after you complete your push-ups and you cannot do any more, remember the punchline where you got to the place where you said, I can't do this anymore. That's when He takes over. That's when the love is fanned into a flame. That's the time to begin again. That's what's going on here. That's what's going on here. Be ruthless with yourself. And He will enable and strengthen. Reassess, refocus, redirect. Almost for two years as a congregation, we have been involved in a major strategic plan. And over the next three months, you're going to hear us talk about it, roll out our major ministry imperatives for the life and ministry of our congregation. And in the very first section, you'll see three main initiatives, principles from which initiatives will come. And the first is this. If we are ever to be the church of God He's calling us to be, number one imperative is this, that we provide opportunities for people to encounter the living God in all of His beauty and glory and through engaging, transforming worship both corporately and privately. That's what we're talking about. That will be a major emphasis. It has been a significant emphasis in the past, and it will continue to be. We will build on all of the biblical foundations we have, but we can't live there. We've got to move on, and we will move on and allow for opportunities of worship that will encounter the living God in all of His beauty and glory through life-transforming worship. If you're visiting First Presbyterian this morning and wondering what kind of church are we, we are that kind of church who believe that worship and engagement with God is a priority. It was to be for the Ephesians. Secondly, we desire that every person who gathers each day of any week will be in awe of God and they will glorify Him and praise Him and honor Him and enjoy Him 
forever. Forever. Number three, we will cultivate a secure spiritual home where people have a sense that they belong. Cultivate a secure Christian home where people have a sense this is where they belong. And, we, and in so doing, we will cultivate a community of worshipers, of worshipers. Over the next several weeks, we will get into all of the detail of how that will work out and what needs to be in place and how we keep our focus, but that's where we begin. So when you think of a performance review, and you think of all that God is saying to us this morning from this letter to the Ephesians, please also remember this, that what He's challenging us with is not easy to do. It demands energy. It demands commitment. It demands perseverance. It demands faithfulness. But more than that, we live in a 21st century environment, and we have at our fingertips every moment of every day a digital playground in which we can be in contact with family and friends all over the United States, all over the world. And that digital playground allows us to go onto Facebook and Twitter and email and text and Google. And they're so convenient. It's wonderful, absolutely spectacular, so much fun. But with it comes this, please hear me. And we touched on this back in November when we said this. For all of the dig digital convenience at our fingertips, we click off and on several times a day, and we do so with this in mind. Intimacy through anonymity intimacy in anonymity. We can go on for five seconds or five minutes or five hours and just unplug when we want. And it's all about convenience. In, out, in, out, in, out. But you cannot live the Christian life like that. There is no such thing in a relationship with Christ as intimacy with anonymity. That's why he says to the church at Ephesus, I know you completely, comprehensively, exhaustively. I know you, and I love you, and I want in the year ahead for that love to grow deeper and deeper and deeper. That's the challenge for us, and it cannot be intimacy with anonymity. We cannot come to a place we call a secure home and remain anonymous because the Scripture never, ever, ever teaches convenience. It teaches commitment. Do you love Him? Do you seek to honor Him and bring glory to Him? Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this wonderful passage of Scripture this morning. Thank You for all of the challenges that it holds for us. And as we leave this morning, we leave encouraged, strengthened, enabled by Your grace, and also challenged. Father, help us please in the week to come as we spend time with You to be specific 
in our promises, holding our tasks to be measurable by you, seeking to achieve all that we have in mind. But most important of all, help us please to come back to our first love and to enjoy again the thrill and wonder of intimacy with you, the living God. Father, bless us this day, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.